Well, it's Friday, and you know with Friday, we get to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sabalero. Very excited to be here with you today. And this episode of Inside EMS is being sponsored by Pulsara. Learn more about how you can build a regional system of care for free at www.pulsara.com EMS. And with me always is my good friend, my compadre, my companion, Kelly Grayson. KG, how you doing? I'm I'm good, comrade. <laughs> Did I say comrade? No, you didn't. You didn't. I just I figured I had to throw one more uh, one more cliche for uh, for Buddy in there for just old time's sake, huh? That's right. All right, awesome, man. Awesome. And, you know, I think that we'll be uh, connected at the hip, uh, doing inside EMS when we're both in our sixties and seventies. So we may become comrades. Who knows? Ooh. Um, All right. Well, that was we're exciting. still doing inside EMS when I'm seventy. Uh, you can go ahead and shoot me. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for playing. Um, you need to probably start training your uh, replacement then here pretty soon. But, uh, yeah. you know, Kelly, you know, I think we got a great topic to discuss today. And you and I have brought up on this show several times about, you know, pediatric calls being, mm-hmm. you know, trepidatious for EMS providers. And it's because... Did you, did you break out your word of the day dictionary again? Was trepidation, was it one of those words? I mean, I don't <laughs> even want to talk about that. the words that you come up with. I've got to write them down and ask Siri what the heck they mean. And so I don't even want to talk about that. But, um, you know, whether it's from minimal training, whether it's from minimal exposure, whether it's from not keeping up on the skills, when we get those pediatric calls, it really gives the EMS provider a little bit of challenge and a little bit of worry. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, one of the things that I've done in my career that I'm very, very proud of is I had the opportunity to be the chair for NAMT's EPC course, the Emergency Pediatric Course. Mm-hmm. And I just enjoyed the opportunity of teaching that course and allowing the EMS providers to develop that confidence and that comfort that they needed in when it came time to taking care of those patients. You know, we've had Dr. Peter Antevi on before, mm-hmm. a big advocate for how to take care of pediatric patients. And, you know, he gives you those tips and those tools, and he's made it easy for us with his hand-heavy system to really kind of think about how do we deal with these pediatric calls. And the best way to do that, well, there was a great article that came out earlier this week in Lights and Sirens on EMS-1, Pediatric Patients ABCs, 7 Tips for EMTs and Paramedics, written by Kevin Grange. And we thought it would be really great to kind of highlight some of the points of this article, Kelly, and you mm-hmm. know, maybe just kind of give your thoughts about, you know, when you think about a pediatric call, how, how did you develop your confidence in, you know, being able to handle these situations? Uh, well, I think the, the first thing I did was take a PEP course from, uh, as I recall, uh, Dr. Lou Romig, um, uh, one of the developers of the original, uh, the original PEP course, and, uh, and sought out pediatric education pretty much whenever I could because that was the, 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 the weak spot in my paramedic knowledge. So uh, I felt a little trepidatious, to use your word, in, in dealing with sick pediatric patients and eventually developed enough confidence uh, at it that, that I, was, I was kind of the kid whisperer at, a, at our service. You know, whenever we had a, a very sick pediatric patient or a, a pediatric critical care transfer, that was, I was the one they called. So I uh, got better at it, but it, there's still the kind of call that, that makes your pulse quicken just a little bit. 
Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's one of those things that you never really know. I mean, a pediatric patient will compensate, compensate, compensate until mm-hmm. once they get to the edge of that cliff and then they fall. And once that fall starts, there's no real pulling them back. But in this article that we're talking about, you know, I, I think it was well written. It gives us some good things to talk about. Yep. But go ahead and give us the first point, Kelly, and uh, give us an overview about it. Yeah, Kevin Kevin makes some excellent points in here. And the first one is acknowledge the anatomical differences between your pediatric patients and adults. And he said you should avoid thinking of pediatric patients as little adults. And anatomically and physiologically, that is true. Now, now Dr. Antevi cautions us that we shouldn't approach resuscitation of a pediatric patient fundamentally any differently than we do with uh, with adults. The skills we practice are pretty much the same. So don't think of, of kids as, as being that different uh, in that regard. But their bodies do function a little differently. Uh, uh, their, their airways are smaller. Their tongues are larger. They're, they're, uh, they're much more flexible uh, and that sort of thing. They're, they uh, have problems with heat control uh, and, and uh, because of their small body, uh, uh, mass to body surface area ratio. So they, they lose a lot of heat, uh, and dehydrate a little quicker. Uh, and pretty much kids are rate dependent on just about everything. They're rate dependent on heart rate for cardiac output. They're rate dependent on, uh, on respiratory rate for minute ventilation, uh, because they can't really alter the volume of those things. Uh, so those are that's why in pediatric assessment we really pay attention to the to the rate uh, of those things to make sure that they're they're um, they're appropriate. And and he points out here that the first sign of shock in a pediatric patient is often rapid heart rate and irritability. Um, and if you're waiting for uh, if you're waiting for hypotension as a frank sign of shock, uh, that that child, to use your analogy, has already run off the end of that cliff. And our whole focus in pediatric assessment and treatment is to build a fence on the cliff, not just put a uh, an EMT down in the at the bottom to catch him when he falls. Yeah, and I think that that's a really great point. And uh, but understanding the differences, and I got to tell you, Kelly, I was one of these people who used to say that they were young adults. And but we really have to be able to be specific. You know, I think the way that we even go through our assessment may be a little bit different. Where you and yeah. I would start a head to toe assessment. With a pediatric patient, it's best to probably start from the bottom up rather than just go reaching for their head kind of thing. But number two, I really uh, enjoyed was the use of the pediatric assessment triangle. And, yeah. you know, this really is something for you to understand. And I got to tell you, when you think about your development as a pediatric caregiver, it really focuses around the pediatric assessment triangle. Mm-hmm. I mean, being able to look at a child and say, are they sick or not sick? I mean, a lot of times when we're walking into that scene and we know that we have a pediatric patient and we see them on the floor and they're playing with toys and they've got a pacifier in their mouth and you know they're just kind of looking around, they're probably not sick. But if yeah. they're in their mom's lap and they're kind of lethargic and they're you know they don't have the color that they need, you know th- that's probably a sick child that we need to make that transport decision and move them. But with the pediatric assessment triangle, we look at their appearance, we 
we consider their breathing, we check their circulation out, but this is something that we can get by looking at them. We don't even have to put a mm-hmm. stethoscope to know that their appearance is bad. We can, you know, hear or see that they're having challenges with their breathing. I mean, Kelly, how many times have you walked into a pediatric patient who was having breathing difficulty and their nose is full of mucus and their nose breathers and they're having difficulty yeah. breathing? Um, and then finally, circulation. Again, that's going to kind of go with appearance, you know. So uh, we want to be able to pay attention to that. But, you know, check out their airway. Uh, determine their work of breathing. Do you hear any sounds coming from their breathing? Of course, accessory muscle use. That's another thing to think about. Mm-hmm. But the biggest component, I think, in all of this is the appearance. Does the child look sick? Yeah. Or does the child look like that they want to get up and have a snack? Um, for you as the provider... Those are big clues. Yeah, the the thing I tell all my EMT students is is pediatric assessment is all about nuance. It's about the quality of assessment findings rather than the quantity. And I think where people go wrong is they focus too much on numbers and they miss that nuance. Um, and and those things are that look test is is paramount. Uh, every seasoned EMS professional develops a pretty uh, pretty refined look test. Uh, they can look at somebody from 10 feet away and tell if they're an extremist or not. Well, the pediatric assessment triangle merely formalizes that look test. And it is extremely accurate as to acuity level and fairly accurate as to, to what organ system is causing the problem. And it's a skill you need to develop because when you start assessing that pediatric patient, you put your hands on them uh, doing a physical exam to determine their baseline, very often that physical exam alters their baseline. Uh, you get your best assessment from 10 feet away, uh, pausing to, to in the doorway a little bit to, to just look at the patient. But once you've done that, you need to attack the chief complaint. As Kevin points out, uh, if the pediatric patient by and large usually can't tell you what's wrong with them, it's a lot like practicing veterinary, veterinary medicine, you can't not be doing things with your hands while you're gathering a history from the parents. Quite often, the parents are going to be uh, panicked, uh, and and the the history they give you is kind of spotty and or rushed. Uh, you need to be doing something while that's going on. Now, if your look test, if that pediatric assessment triangle has revealed a child who's not in extremis, then maybe listening to the parents early on before you start your physical exam is appropriate. But if you've looked from 10 feet away and found that this child fails your look test and and he has problems with appearance, breathing work or circulation of the skin, then you need to jump right on that right now and talk while you work. And that's the get your OPQRST and your sample histories and your history of the present illness uh, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and learn to multitask because if you wait, uh, this this kid may well run off the end of that cliff before you get a chance to catch him. And, and you know, Kelly, I think that this is one of the things as well that gives paramedics and ENTs a little bit of challenge is, you know, we're trying to think about the differential diagnosis when we talk about an adult patient. But if we could just think about the chief complaint when it comes to a pediatric patient, and kind of work at the differential from there, I think it gives us a better understanding of maybe what's going on. But if we talk about respiratory distress, let's figure out why there's respiratory distress, and Mm -hmm. let's fix it. 
if we're talking about that the patient is, you know, uh, has a loss of color, what's the reason for that? So I, I like the attack the chief complaint. You know, another thing, number four that Kevin gives us is to pay attention to the parents. And, you know, he gives some good uh, information there. From my side, you know, I think dealing with parents is uh, a very interesting component when it comes to their children. You mm -hmm. certainly know a first-time parent when you walk into their home and yeah. their child has just had a febrile seizure for the first time. Um, but then you know those parents that have five or six kids and they've been through the febrile seizure, uh, you know, tragedy uh, a couple different times and, and the way that they're approaching it. But when I read this, the thing that gave me uh, something to think about was I ran two calls in one day, Kelly. The very mm -hmm. first call I ran was at six o'clock in the morning for a pediatric arrest. And of course, you know, at six o'clock in the morning, the chances are that that's usually a baby died sometime in the night and they exactly. just noticed it. Exactly. But the parents, yeah. I got to tell you, man, the parents were so distraught. I mean, the in the ER, we were transporting at the time in the ER, the father was on his knees praying to God, you know, sobbing uncontrollably. And this set a horrible tone for us the rest of the day. Our last call of the day was a child who was unresponsive. And we were trying to figure out what was going on. And my partner ran this call. I was driving with the father who was in the front with me talking about the football game the night before. And come to find out that there were some uh, behaviors by that parent against that child that probably shouldn't have happened. But it just made huh. me think about that when we're dealing with parents and children, you know, you talked about, you know, the veterinary medicine where you don't know what's going on with them and you have to rely on the parents. I think how the parents are approaching this situation is a big, uh, um, is, is big information for this situation. Now, I'm not saying every parent who doesn't react is abusing their children by any means. Uh -huh. But, you know, it, it does kind of give you a little bit of insight to know a little bit about what maybe have, has happened. And, you know, being the caregiver and giving the information and has, has these things ever happened before. But, you know, a lot of times when we're in these situations, Kelly, we focus on the child and we don't pay attention to the caregivers that are around us. Yeah. And they could be a great wealth of information. Oh, yeah. And, you know, my own experiential anecdote was uh, a special needs patient who was seven years old and had a host of, of congenital medical defects and and uh and the mother um she won the battle of 25 dollar medical words with me she knew more stuff about her child's condition than i did and that was a pretty powerful lesson as a young paramedic that that when you deal with with uh especially uh, children with special health care needs you run into two types of parents you run into parents who stick their head in the sand and don't want to learn anything about anything, and they call for help at the slightest thing, and they, they, they really are overwhelmed by the gravity of their child's medical issues. And then you run into the other type who have educated themselves on what's wrong with their child, what kind of what their medical conditions, the proper treatment for it. They're informed, they're active, and those parents far outnumber the, the stick-your-head-in-the-sand types. And and you ignore those parents at their peril. If they say, my child is acting funny today, you best take it seriously right. because the, the window of compensation 
for a pediatric special needs patient is is razor thin. And it's, I want to add a narrow window. Yeah, I want to add to that as well. Um, you know, I love I love teaching the special needs class of EPC. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I used to tell the paramedics and EMTs that took the class all the time was a lot of these parents know more about this condition than you do. Oh, yeah. And if they're calling EMS, that means they're freaked out. And that's something that you got to pay attention to very, very quickly because they've done the changes of the catheters and they've, you know, done the, you know, the, you know, changed the breathing tubes and they've done whatever it is that they were taught to do. Um, so pay special attention to that. But before we go any further, Kelly, I want to take a brief moment. I just want to go ahead and talk about Pulsera. Pulsera provides a real-time communication network across entire regions, and it's free to EMS. The Pulsera platform, built on the power of mobile technology, unites the right clinicians at the right time for the right patient, providing transparency and streamlined communication. Simply create a dedicated patient channel, Build your team and then communicate using audio, video, instant messaging, data images, and key benchmarks. Any patient, any condition, every time. And oh, did we mention that it's free to EMS? For more information, visit pulsara.com slash EMS. That's P-U-L-S-A-R-A dot com slash EMS. You know, and, and along the same line of pay attention to the parents is uh, because they're an excellent resource uh, to the child's condition and, and the care given. Uh, you should take every opportunity to make your job easier. You know, there is Ginger Locke in, in her podcast is, is makes excellent points about the value of cognitive offloading. And when you talk about pediatric dosing, for example, medication dosing, most of it is weight-based, and it's almost impossible to remember all of those doses. Uh, Dr. Hantevy makes a, 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 a good stab at it, and, and at least the cardiac arrest dosing uh, on his uh, Hantevy uh, reference cards, but it's hard to memorize that sort of thing. And, and a wise man once said, you don't have to work hard as long as you work smart. And a smart medic consults his references. Anything you can do to make your life easier, a checklist, a reference card, anything like that, you should absolutely use because anything that will allow you to devote that brain power to problem solving in the resuscitation rather than remembering uh, esoteric trivia, you should use. So something like the hand-heavy pediatric system or a Braslow tape or whatever cheat sheet your agency uses, you really, really need to be familiar with that uh, and, and know when to utilize it because that is going to make the difference between a stressful resuscitation and a fairly smooth one. Keep that reference uh, card in your pocket or clip to your, to your, uh, your name tag holder uh, or know where that uh, Braslow tape is in your in your ALS kit uh, and be ready to use it because it takes a whole lot of the guesswork uh, out of pediatric resuscitation. If you're in the middle of a pediatric code and you're doing math, you are already screwed. Don't do that. Uh, use something where the math is already done for you. Yeah, that's some great advice. You know, the next one that I thought was really interesting was no childhood development by ages. So think about it for you guys and girls that are out there when we think about developmental ages. And, you know, we're not really thinking about a lot of things that were changing in the process of our assessment. We talked about the pediatric assessment triangle. 
We talked about your knowledge of pediatric anatomy and how they differ. And now pay attention, specific attention, to the development of ages. And when you think about it, it puts them into five categories. You have infants yeah. from 0 to 12 months. You've got toddlers from 1 to 3 years. You've got preschoolers from 3 to 5 years. You've got school-age kids 6 to 12 years. You've got adolescent 13 to 18. So when we think about the knowledge that we really need to have, again, you know, paying attention to those specific ages, we know where they should be falling in those specific growth um, you know, in those specific growth ranges. You know, for mm-hmm. an example, when you have a preschooler, you know that they could probably talk and use simple words. Now, they may be a little shy and they don't want you to, you know, put the stethoscope on them. But compared to a zero to 12 month old, uh, you know, you need to be able to, you know, you got to be able to figure out what's going on without them talking to you and kind of get the caregiver's input. But with a preschooler, you kind of ask them, how do you feel and what happened and did you fall down? And, you know, and, and when you talk to them as well, talk to them like a professional. And there are times when, you know, I've heard, you know, EMS providers do baby talk, you know, to yeah. when they deal with the children. And, you know, really give yourself the credit just to talk to them. Use plain language like you would talk to your own child, if you have. And, and kind of let that guide you, Kelly. And I don't know if you've ever heard you know, the, the, the differences in how folks communicate with pediatric patients. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you got to pull people aside and say, what the heck are you thinking? Yeah. And, and you know, that, that whole knowing the, the developmental uh, stages of, of children uh, all harkens back to that initial pediatric assessment triangle and the appearance of the child. Because when you do that look test from 10 feet away, it has to be done in the context of the developmental stage of the child. A child who, an infant uh, of four months of age is going to act different than an 18-month-old baby. Uh, Their appearance uh, and the way they behave and interact with their environment changes. Now, you don't have to do so much as, as, as remember the vital signs for each age or the formula for determining the minimum systolic blood pressure and, and all of that kind of stuff because a, a good look at, at skin signs and, and breathing work will tell you whether a child is breathing effectively or not or perfusing adequately or not without need for numbers. But the, the thing that's going to herald stability or instability is that child's appearance and to know uh, whether that condition is, is compensating or not, and thus perfusing their brain, you're going to have to know what's developmentally appropriate for a child that age. And it's a fairly easy thing to memorize uh, the developmental uh, and behavioral characteristics of each one of those age ranges. Um, but, but that's something that can yield a great deal of comfort uh, and information when you're, when you're assessing those pediatric patients to know that, yeah, this kid's fussy and he's upset, but that's appropriate uh, for a, a 14-month-old baby that's just been handed off to a total stranger, that sort of thing. Um, and the more you learn that sort of stuff, the more it, it comes into our, our last uh, bullet point that Kevin makes is competence breeds confidence. You should seek out pediatric education whenever possible because if you took a poll of, of EMS providers around the country and you asked them what was most lacking in their initial education, they will probably tell you pediatric emergencies. Uh, and, and peds make up about one out of 10 of our typical call volume. And the, the truly sick ones are about one out of 100. So 
you know, the, the sickest kids, we just don't run all that often, and we don't get the chance to develop any confidence in dealing with them. But you can help develop some of that confidence in, a, in regular classes um, and, and take the, the information you've learned in PEP or EPC or STABLE or PEARS or a PALS course and game plan in your head what you're going to do on the way to the call. And that's going to make a lot more confident provider when you arrive on scene. But hey, we've heard what Kevin Grange thinks. We've told you what we think. We'd also like to hear what you think. What are your pediatric assessment and treatment tips and tricks and perils and pitfalls? Share them with us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.